For Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Once again, we're, we're kind of MacGyvering together a podcast this week. Uh, we're we're uh, practicing good social distancing. We're not even in the same building. We're doing this remotely, um, testing out some new microphones, uh, hopefully improving the sound quality a little bit every time out as we uh, continue to podcast in this uh, coronavirus world. Yeah, excited that you got a new microphone. Uh, I was still learning how it goes, but <laughs> I, ideally... Okay, well, it's professional here to have, have a microphone. <laughs> ideally, it should get better after this, but um, really a big week, and some of our top stories picked up, Kevin, almost as soon as we finished last Friday's podcast. But let's talk about, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, the new budget holdbacks that Governor Brad Little announced. You took a close look at that, and then you had kind of a, a larger step pack piece this week. But what are the holdbacks, and what are we looking at? Yeah, so this kind of picks us up where we left off as we uh, wrapped up last week's podcast. So not too long after we finished recording last week's podcast, Governor Little held a press conference and he announced a 1% budget holdback affecting almost all of state government. And what's different this time around is that this holdback, unlike previous holdbacks, will affect K-12 in addition to higher education, in addition to almost every state agency. Um, So what that means for public schools is a $19 million budget cut imposed over the final three months of the budget year. So that makes it a a little bit more complicated. You you have to find those cuts in a short amount of time. For higher education, it comes to about a $3 million budget cut, again, over those final three months of the budget year because the budget year ends on June the 30th. Um, When Governor Little talked a little bit about the holdback on Friday and talked a little bit about imposing the holdback and extending it to K-12, he expressed some, yeah, that he had put a lot of thought into that, that he had considered maybe sparing K-12 from another round of budget cuts, as he has done in the past. But this time around, he decided to go with the -the across-the-board budget cuts. And you can see why uh, these cuts are coming down. All you need to do is look at some of the economic numbers that we've seen nationally and in Idaho. Yeah, huge spikes in new unemployment claims as the coronavirus and the coronavirus shutdowns affect the labor market. It's easy to see that this uh, is already having an immediate and profound effect on the state's economy, on the national economy. And and as Governor Little pointed out, you know, what we're going to see, and we're probably going to see this a lot more immediately, is an impact on sales tax revenues. Uh, People are going to spend less at the stores. especially uh, folks who have lost their jobs or are fearing the potential loss of jobs, they're going to uh, not spend much money and they're going to, uh, as a result, pay fewer uh, dollars of sales tax. And that has a very immediate effect on the state's budget. It has a very immediate effect on revenues. So that's why you saw the holdbacks imposed on uh, on Friday, a week ago today, um, and why you saw it across the board even affecting K-12. And that's, and that's why we talk about budgets is because the largest expense every year for the state of Idaho out of its general fund 
is K-12 public education. Uh, that alone is about 49% of the budget. When you factor in higher education, then now you're talking like 60% of the budget or so. So any effect on state revenues and any holdbacks um, are going to put a crunch on education. But let's look at your step back piece, Kevin, from Thursday, because you kind of compared how what we're seeing now, you know, maybe it's starting to look a little bit like 2008. What did you mean by that? And, and, and take us back to 2008 uh, for why that's maybe an example that came to mind. Well, first of all, one way that this really resembles 2008, and we're seeing it immediately, uh, there's going to be an infusion of federal dollars coming to states to help cover education budgets and, and education funding. It's a little bit, uh, the details are still a little bit unclear, and state education leaders are still trying to get uh, their arms wrapped around the details. The governor's office is still trying to get the, its arms wrapped around the details. But we know this much, that the $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus bill that uh, passed Congress last week, we know it contains about $31 billion, billion would they be, dollars for education across the country. And from what I've been able to glean from the analysis that's coming out right now, Idaho's cut of that money could come to a little bit more than $100 million. Now that's divided into two different pots of K-12. Uh, I think that's about a $48 million pot of money. Uh, there's another pot of money that goes just to higher education and the projections from the state board. That's about a $38 million pot of money uh, that either goes to the institutions but also goes to direct student aid. And then there's a final pot of money that goes straight to the governors for them to decide where to put it, uh, where to spend it. Uh, so the governors have a lot of latitude with that money to decide whether K-12 needs some extra help or higher education needs some extra help. And according to the projections that I'm seeing, Governor Little will have about $15 million at his disposal to decide where to put it, where, where the greatest need is in the education system. So you add all that up, that's about $101 million that could be coming to Idaho in direct assistance uh, for K-12 and higher education. And as the governor announced the holdbacks last week, you could tell the, the fact that federal money was on the way influenced his decision about extending the holdback to K-12. I think that he views the federal money as an offset uh, that will cover the losses, of, that will cover the holdback and will cover the the losses in, in sales tax revenue that we anticipate seeing here over the next couple of months. And the numbers do add up. You know, if you're doing a $19 million holdback in K-12 and you know you're getting somewhere around $48 million direct uh, from the feds for K-12, well, you know, obviously those numbers work out at least in the short term. Yeah. So much like what we saw in 2008 in the Great Recession, uh, there's a, an infusion of federal money that's coming to at least you know, soften the blow in the short term. Yeah, and uh, you and I both were on several webinars this week, Kevin, with the State Department of Education, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Yabara, uh, had two webinars. I caught one with Deputy Superintendent for Finance, Tim Hill, but a lot of questions from educators and administrators about, well, both the stimulus and the holdbacks, and we kept hearing, you know, stay tuned, 
maybe uh, in the coming days, maybe early next week, we'll get some answers on how that could be distributed or what the exact timing will be and some of those kinds of technical details that uh, end up making a lot of difference, right? Right. I mean, the timing matters and the mechanics of how this rollout matters, especially uh, for for school districts and charter schools because, you know, spring is contract negotiation season. Yeah. So that's, a, that, that's a big job that uh, school boards and, and charter administrators are going to be uh, taking on just in these next few weeks. So, you know, the rollout of the money and the mechanics of the money uh, is, is very important. That was something that we heard several times on those webinars, uh, the, the urgency of the matter, because like you said, with spring comes contract negotiations uh, between the local education agencies and the school district. And so everybody really wants to know what's this upcoming year going to look like? What's the budget year going to look like? Because salaries and benefits are such a huge expense uh, when you look at the overall pie. But also we do know, like you said, the 1% holdback for the current budget year, which ends June 30th, uh, the $19 million. We don't yet know uh, if the upcoming budget year will be affected. And that's the budget that just passed out of the legislature just really a couple of weeks ago before they left time. Have not heard about any impact for that 2021 budget but it's fair to say something could happen. We don't really know how deep this is going to go or what the long-term financial and fiscal impacts will be, correct? Right, and, and that's the, the part that's impossible to predict. And you know, as I kind of drew the parallels between 2008 and 2020, we just don't know. We know that the economy is heading into a downturn. It's already in a downturn. Yeah. We just don't know how deep and for how long. You know. The Idaho Center for Fiscal Policy uh, does some really good research, and, and they put out a, a study on Thursday, and they crunched some of the numbers about what's going to happen in the immediate short term in terms of sales tax collections. And the numbers get uh, get pretty pretty sobering pretty quickly. You know, a, a decline yeah. in sales tax revenues like we saw during the Great Recession, it has an immediate impact and a profound impact. And I get into that in the story. But one of the things that... Um, the center said in its analysis is this is a recession that we're heading into let's assume it is a recession because a lot of economists are assuming that's where we're going that is unprecedented and a look different than we've seen in in prior uh, in prior downturns that this may be a very deep decline with a relatively quick recovery relative to what we saw i mean that great recession and you know yeah, I was covering state government and, and, you know, in my prior life at the Statesman as an editorial page editor, that downturn took several years to to reverse itself. I mean, it was a profound, you know, deep downturn, you know, rooted in, in the housing crisis. And it took several years for things to turn around. And as I pointed out in my piece uh, on Thursday, it took several years for the K-12 and the higher education budgets to get back to the numbers that they were at pre-recession. And that's just, I'm just talking raw numbers at that point. I'm not talking about inflation. I didn't uh, adjust for inflation or adjust for growth. Just raw numbers. It took several years for those uh, budgets to return to where they were pre-recession. Who knows what we're looking at in terms of this downturn, how, how deep, how profound, how long the rate of recovery 
know, I am not an economist. Uh, I, I would not pretend to have any predictions about that because, you know, let's face it, it is dependent on how how the coronavirus outbreak plays out, you know, which we don't know either. So impossible to predict what the impacts are going to be, but it is very clear that we're already seeing an immediate impact on the budgets and an immediate impact on revenues, uh, hence the governor's uh, decision last week. Yeah, I think that that was an important piece. I was glad that you talked about, you know, the impact in terms of the years it took back to get uh, to get back to the previous funding levels uh, observed prior to 2008. But I think that, you know, it's obvious that the coronavirus is our top story. And a result of that, you know, the economy, the revenue picture, how that affects schools will be an ongoing big story as well. And so that sort of sets that up and positions the things that, that we'll look at and the questions that we'll ask over the next, you know, weeks and months as we start to, you know, see how big this is and how deep this goes. And, and obviously the other big thing that we're watching right now, and we'll get uh, maybe some better sense of what the future looks like here is just in terms of the school closures. Um, we're now almost two weeks into the soft closure. We've had a lot of coverage of how school districts are responding to the soft closure, the rollout of um, going to remote learning, online learning. Um, I, I've had pieces about Boise and West Ada. I had kind of a, a step back piece about Blaine County and how they're doing their rollout and how they're dealing with the, the potential for closure or reopening schools right there in the, in the heart, the community hardest hit right now by the coronavirus outbreak. But what we don't know, and we may get some better sense of direction on next week, is how long the school closure goes, how long the public schools are closed. We know it's in, in, until at least April 20th, but let's talk about that a little bit because uh, that's another that's another variable right now. Uh, yeah, I, I think this State Board of Education meeting coming up on Monday is going to be interesting. I've gotten, I've seen several indicators this week that the State Board may consider extending the school closure. One of the points that was made was the White House had extended its social distancing guidelines. And so, you know, how is Idaho going to take that into account? That came up earlier this week, uh, the state board, I know their, their members wanted to consult with school administrators, local health officials, and they knew that they didn't have to make an immediate decision this week because schools are already physically closed uh, through April 20th. Anyways, they're closed now, uh, but we could see some action on that Monday. I think one of the possibilities, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that this is what's going to happen or or this is the most likely, likely outcome, but I think one of the possibilities under discussion is whether or not to uh, close school for the rest of the academic calendar year. Right. And if you look at it, if we would expend it into May, then we've just talked about the nature of the school calendar. If, if we're going to be closed till May anyways, that's just the last couple of weeks. Um, and so that may be something that school, that they consider on Monday. But I, I think that that's, a possibility, and we have seen that in, is it 10 other states, Kevin, where they have right, called right. off school? I, I did a blog about this on Friday, and you can look at it, and you can look at the map that Education Week has put together. Yes, we're up to 10 states that have already decided they're done. They're, they're closed for the rest of the academic year. And 
I suspect that part of the, the decision and part of the calculus on the decision is that at some point here, you know, you get to a point of no return. You get to a point where you're so late into the school year that reopening for a couple of weeks, it stops making as much sense. You're not going to recapture a lot of what you lost in terms of the classroom experience. You're not going to be able to administer the IDO reading indicator. That's something that's going to be decided on here fairly soon. The further out the closures go, the harder it is to do that test. You've already canceled a lot of the other assessments. And you're also getting to the point where you're canceling events like commencement. You're canceling spring programs. The stuff, the milestone events that parents and kids point to. I think you get to a point in this school year where it might just stop being practical to even think about reopening the schools. And I don't know where that point in time occurs. But as you mentioned, we have had the White House say, you know, practice social distancing, avoid large groups through the end of the month. We know now, because this happened after the school closure, we have the statewide stay-at-home order from Governor Little that extends into April 15th. On Idaho Reports Thursday night, the governor said there's going to be something beyond April 15th. There will be a continuation of some kind after April 15th. So if you have that going on and you have the directive from the White House, you know, that all has to factor into the state board's decision. And, you know, we'll have a little bit better sense of where this is going. We may have a lot better sense of where this is going on Monday when the state board meets. Yeah, and I'm not a, you know, a records and data expert the way that, you know, Randy Schrader is from our office. But I also got the sense on some of these webinars that if the state board did make a call with a date certain, that maybe that could even give school districts a little bit more clarity as they look at some of the waivers that they might have to pursue for instruction hours or attendance. That might give them just a little bit more clarity rather than, okay, what are we going to do in three weeks? What are we going to do in five weeks? It might give them a little bit more clarity with some of their reports and funding and things like that. I have no idea. And I think that that's a really good point. I think also part of the practicality here, too, is we're seeing school districts turn their education delivery model around on a dime in real time. I mean, the West Ada School District is trying to figure out how to get educational materials into the hands of 40,000 kids. How many can access the Internet? How many need printed materials? West Ada figures that they're going to be up and running fully with a remote learning model on April 13th. Well, that's one week before the current end of the soft closure period. Are you going to go to all of that effort, this Herculean effort, for a program that you're only going to do for a few days? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. So I think at some point in this dialogue, you start looking at it and you start saying, we've done all of this. We have directives from the White House. We have a continuing directive, probably an extended stay-at-home order from the state. At what point does it stop making a whole lot of sense to try to reopen the schools? I don't know where that point is, but I suspect that that conversation is going to unfold here in the not-too-distant future. 
Yeah, we may get some guidance on that Monday. I know at last Monday's State Board of Education meeting, I think it was board member Dave Hill who said when it comes to this decision, he wants to look at how long they have to remain closed, but also what reopening procedures could look like uh, and what reopening procedures could look like next fall. And so they want to look at, you know, a big picture and not make a quick decision here. And so I think that's why they spent this week gathering information and we'll learn the latest on Monday. But I was just to shift gears a little bit. It's a related topic. I was on Governor Brad Little's telephone town hall meeting on Tuesday afternoon. He's been doing these once a week since the emergency declaration in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Several questions, but one in particular, a caller called up and said, when are things going to get back to normal? What's a date that we can expect our lives to get back together? And what metrics will we use you know, to make that decision and to know that we're there? And Governor Little said that he was on a phone call this week with President Trump and other governors from across the country. And Governor Little said, you know, I hate to tell you this, but we don't know. And the quote that he gave is, it's not like you turn the spigot off and then you'll turn it the spigot on all of a sudden again. He said he was talking with another governor friend of his who had made the point that he was thinking back to to 9-11, to September 11th. And there were a lot of restrictions and things that changed. And life kind of came back together slowly and incrementally and in stages. And then Governor Little said, you know, that may be similar to what plays out here. uh, But we're not going to go back to normal on April 16th or April 21st or, or whatever date. Um, I, I think people, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, you hate to speculate, but I get the sense that, that measures will continue and that this will be more of a long lasting thing rather than just a two week situation. I, I agree. And I think when you look at what's happening in other States, um, this is going to take time. You know, the, the whole, concept of flattening the curve it takes time you know you know as i look at idaho's coronavirus case numbers but i also want to look at what's happening in other states to to put it into some sort of context you're starting to see the curve flattening in states like washington and oregon and you know but you also have to keep in mind that a they started with you know measures such as, you know, stay-at-home orders or, you know, restrictions on large events a, a couple of weeks before Idaho did. Now, Idaho's a, a couple of weeks later in the process, um, you know, the governor wanted to wait to see a, a point where Idaho had kind of widespread uh, community spread of the virus in several localities. And when he saw that, that, that triggered the, uh, the statewide stay-at-home order. So states like our Oregon and Washington are further along in this process, are further along in the the effort to try to flatten the curve. And, and even there, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure they're wanting to see the curve flatten even more before, you know, those states start to try to, uh, you know, think about life after the coronavirus outbreak. I think it's, you know, premature for them to be thinking about that, and I don't think they are. So, you know, I think all we know at this point is uh, watching this thing one day at a time, it's going to take time. Yeah, that actually came up on Governor Little's telephone town hall meeting on Tuesday about flattening the curve and the social distancing order. He actually said because of 
the incubation period and the amount of time where people can spread without knowing they have it or showing symptoms that he would expect that maybe around two weeks after the stay home order that Idaho could begin to see some dividends uh, pay off from that in terms of the curve being flattened. And so, right. And we can watch this, you know, on a county by county basis and watch what happens in Blaine County, because, uh, we know that Blaine County has been hit so hard right now by the coronavirus yeah. and their per capita numbers are uh, even higher than the per capita infection rates in New York City. I mean, this has really hit Blaine County hard and Blaine County is now 15 days into an isolation order uh, from the state. So we will see if there is any evidence of the curve flattening in Blaine County in the days to come. We may see that days, the numbers first. Have not, uh, have not shown signs of flattening, but, you know, obviously we'll watch closely to see what happens in Blaine County in the days to come. Yeah. Juxtapose that with what we're seeing statewide. Um, you know, yeah, I, I said 10 minutes ago that I'm not an economist. Well, I'm not an epidemiologist either. So, no, neither um, was I. you know, I, I know enough about numbers to be dangerous when it comes to economics and epidemiology but that's the kind of those are the things that you know citizen watch for uh, uh, as we crunch these numbers and as we report these numbers and, and you know yeah the challenge is to uh, try to give you the the figures as uh, as straightforward in as straightforward a way as possible to not uh, be alarmists but not to convey false hope sure um, we are in something that we've never been in before, and um, we're just trying to get you the numbers as best we can, uh, follow the trends as best we can, and and not and not jump to conclusions that we can't uh, that we can't defend uh, based on the facts. Yeah, uh, we've had a lot of coronavirus response coverage. Uh, the homepage www.idahoednews.org is probably the best place to go if you need to get caught up on some of the incremental daily stuff over the week. Um, as you might expect, they canceled the free SAT day that would have taken place right. this spring. A couple other developments out there that you can catch uh, on the homepage and we'll continue to update it um, daily. But I wanna switch gears a little bit and kind of tie up these loose ends with the legislative session. Even though the session ended two weeks ago, uh, the governor took action on the final controversial bills this week, Kevin, one of them was House Bill 500, which we've been following since its introduction. Remind me what that bill was and what action did the governor take? Yeah, so in a, in a pre-coronavirus podcast, we would have gotten to this uh, a lot sooner than we are today. We're 20, 27 minutes in and we're finally talking about House Bill 500. As you all recall, House Bill 500 is the, uh, the bill that would ban uh, transgender girls and women from, from taking part in girls and women's sports. Uh, it passed the legislature in the final days of the session, so it landed on Governor Little's desk just as the legislature was adjourning for the year. Uh, that gave him you know, basically 10 working days to decide what to do with that bill. And the news came down Monday evening uh, that uh, the governor signed House Bill 500 into law it was one of several controversial bills that the governor signed without any explanation. Um, House Bill 500, the, the transgender athletics bill, he also signed into law a, a bill that would 
ban transgender Idahoans from changing the gender markers on their birth certificate. This runs counter to a federal court order. Um, he also signed into law a, a bill that will uh, limit affirmative action in Idaho. Uh, that would you know, kind of strip away a lot of uh, affirmative action protections. The two transgender bills, 500 and 509, seem to be almost destined to uh, wind up in court. I think the ACLU has already said, we'll see you in court. Right. And and what we saw, especially in House Bill 500, and I uh, reviewed this in, in our story on Monday, uh, the Attorney General, current Attorney General, raised several potential legal concerns with 500. Five former Attorneys General have lobbied the governor, urging him to veto. House Bill 500 are urging little to listen to Lawrence Wasden's advice on this. Um, yeah. And I find it interesting, too. Um, you know, a year ago, after the legislature adjourned, I think it was after the legislature adjourned, but just about when the legislature adjourned, uh, the governor vetoed bills that would have greatly restricted the initiative process, would have placed a lot of sideboards around the initiative process. And where I'm going here is that when the governor vetoed those bills, his veto message was very clear. He said that he had no particular problem with where the legislature was trying to go. He had no particular problem with trying to put sideboards around the initiative process. What he said at the time was, this won't stand up in court. Um, you know, we will, this will not uh, withstand a challenge in, in the Ninth Circuit Court. So in, in essence, he vetoed a bill that he thought was a, you know, was a loser in, in federal court. And a lot of critics of House Bill 500 and House Bill 509, the birth certificate bill, are saying these are destined to uh, you know, be shot down in court. So we do know that there's going to be a court challenge, and that's inevitable. And we do know that that comes at a cost. And you know, if you lose in court, you, know, you incur the added cost of sometimes having to pay the attorney's fees on the other side of the case. So um, the signings uh, definitely put into play uh, no small amount of money. No, no small amount of state money will be spent uh, defending these two, uh, these two bills in court. Yeah, and so I guess the drama will eventually shift from the chambers of the state house to the chambers of a courthouse uh, at some unknown, undetermined date. I think that yeah. those bills, unless they had emergency clauses, likely hit the books on July 1st. I can't remember, to be honest, if they had emergency clauses I, I or not. I believe you're right. I don't know about whether there's an emergency clause in, in either of them, but I, I, I don't recall there being one. Yeah, and so that basically wrapped up any outstanding education issues uh, that we were looking at. I think, Kevin, if that covered it, I know you wanted to close out taking a couple of minutes um, talking about sort of our approach to coverage and kind of how we're doing things and what's going on over here, if that wrapped up everything yeah. you wanted to get yeah. to from the uh, legislative angle. Yeah, so, you know, we've kind of, it's become sort of a, a running joke here in our office that we just came out of 104 days of March. Um, this has been maybe the toughest month of covering a story that I can recall in, in 35 years of doing this. This has been such a sudden story and such a sobering story and, and a frightening story in so many ways. Um, you know, and 
you know, we're working really hard, all of us here at Idaho Ed News and, um, and journalists all over the state trying to cover this story. You know, and there, there's so many aspects to it, the, the public health aspect of, of it, obviously, the economic impact of it, the impact now on education on hundreds of thousands of kids. This is what we've been um, really trying to come to grips with over the past uh, couple of weeks. And, and I don't say this to glorify what we do. I mean, you know, I get to go home at night. I get to walk my dogs. I get to hang out with my wife and, and recap the day. Um, you know, our life in that sense is pretty normal. The, the folks on the front line, the folks in the hospitals, in the, in the ERs, in, in, the, you know, in the doctor's offices who are you know, putting their health at risk, putting their lives on the line, you know, they're the heroes. You know, let's never lose sight of that. I mean, we're, we're, we're writers. We get to you know, write the first draft of history here, but we, you know, you know, our lives are, are, are a hell of a lot less, uh, less challenging and, and less frightening than what uh, they're dealing with on the front line. So let's, well, let's keep those folks in, their thought, in our thoughts. But I guess what I wanted to say as we've gone through this is, you know, we've had a lot of you reach out to us with suggestions, with story ideas, with, with feedback, and, and with encouragement. And that's just really cool. You know, that, you know we've had a, a number of you, either through email or text or uh, on our social media platforms saying, you know, you know, keep it up, keep, you know, you know, hang in there, you know, stay safe and, and keep doing what you're doing. And you don't know how important that is to us. I mean, I know it's really important to me. And I've tried to, I think I've responded to everyone who's reached out to me personally, and if I've missed anybody, I, I, I apologize, but that means a lot. And, you know, you know, it just, you know, to know that we've got, you know, you reading us and listening to us and putting, putting some value in the, the content that we're putting out, that means a lot too. That's, you know, that you're putting trust in us is, that means a lot. And that is not something that's lost on me that, um, you know, you're, you're inundated with information and you're coming to us to get some of your information. That is, uh, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, it, it means a lot and helps us, uh, <laughs> gives you a little bit of fuel to get through times like these, uh, where we, you know, uh, so much is uncertain, um, but yeah, I, I feel the we exact same way. This, you know, yeah. there is another side on this thing. I, I, I believe that in my heart, and we'll have podcasts where we get to talk about soccer for a couple minutes here and there, and we get to joke about you know, you know, and we get to talk about our, our personal adventures because we get to have personal adventures again. So you know, we'll we'll get through this, but yeah, the fact that you guys are hanging with us through this is, you know, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, absolutely looking forward to those days. Uh, but in the meantime, it means a whole lot to hear from all of you and really helps uh, keep us going. And... and stay in touch if there are things that you want to see us cover, if there are questions that you have, if there are things that you're seeing happening in your communities, uh, you know, things are happening in your households. If you're a, a parent, you know, trying to help you get through or if you're a student who's, you know, got an experience that you want to share, reach out to us. We want to tell those stories. Yeah, especially once we get, I mean, we're going to continue to cover the developments um, and spread of the virus and the state's response, but we want to start telling more stories about um, how, how people are getting through this, what educators are doing, what parents are doing, what students are doing, and look at some of those personal stories. Uh, and so we're going to be doing more of that in the coming days and weeks as well. But thanks so much for 
uh, continuing to follow us and continuing to check out the Extra Credit Podcast. We're trying to turn the corner here with our with our audio setup and our production. It's just a little bit tricky. Um, just when we thought we maybe got the hang of things a little bit, the whole system <laughs> changed, obviously, so we're trying to do our best. And even though it may not sound uh, like you're used to in the past, we hope that it's getting better and we appreciate your patience and willing to check us out uh, for the information and the content. It means a lot. Um, but anyways, I hope you're doing well. Take care of each other and uh, have a great weekend. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.